Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week I'm going to talk to John Cleese, Monty Python co-founder, leading light of the comedy firmament, and noted collector of stuffed animals. One of the reasons I'm so in love with my wife is that I discovered when I met her that she had a, a large collection of stuffed animals, um, almost as good as my own. So we've decided to um, put these animals together and leave them to the Smithsonian when <laughs> she dies. I thought you were putting them together to make more stuffed animals. <laughs> it's Bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, my conversation with the very funny and very tall John Cleese. His memoir is called So Anyway. He'll explain why he chose not to be a lawyer, where his sense of humor comes from, and how he felt about last year's Monty Python reunion. It wasn't a show in the ordinary sense of the word. And once I'd realized that, then I really began to enjoy the show enormously. I'll also sit down with Dee Dee Penny. She's the front woman of Dum Dum Girls. They're a full-on garage band girl group now, but Dee Dee started the project on her own and recorded everything herself. The entire learning curve and learning process was committed to record. <laughs> then I'll tell you about what might well be the least braggy rap song ever made. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. John Cleese was almost a lawyer. In fact, he had accepted a job with a huge London law firm. He was going to start once he'd finished his last year at Cambridge. Then his life took a sharp left turn. His college comedy group, the now famous Footlights, went on tour, first to London, then to New Zealand, then to Broadway. And somewhere between the college quad and the law offices, Cleese became a professional comedian. His memoir, So Anyway, tells the story of how Cleese the writer and performer came to be, where Monty Python and Faulty Towers and all the rest came from. Here's a scene from Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. Cleese plays the teacher in this scene. He's instructing a class of very, very bored students. Now, before I begin the lesson, will those of you who are playing in the match this afternoon move your clothes down onto the lower peg immediately after lunch? Before you write your letter home, if you're not getting your hair cut, unless you've got a younger brother who's going out this weekend as the guest of another boy, in which case collect his note before lunch, put it in your letter after you've had your hair cut, and make sure he moves your clothes down onto the lower peg for you. Now, sir. Yes, Wyma? My younger brother's going out with Dibble this weekend, sir, but I'm not having my hair cut today, sir, so do I move my clothes do down? Do wish you'd listen, Wyma. It's perfectly simple. If you're not getting your hair cut, you don't have to move your brother's clothes down to the lower peg. You simply collect his note before lunch, after you've done your scripture prep, when you've written your letter home before rest, move your own clothes onto the lower peg, greet the visitors, and report to Mr. Viney that you've had your chit signed. Now, sex. John Cleese and I spoke last year. John Cleese, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the Thank show. Thank you for having me on. So I, I think the reason that we pulled that uh, clip from uh, Meaning of Life is that 90% of the characters that you've played over the many years have right. been authority figures sort of dealing with these... Um, 
issues of emotional disclosure. Yes, that's right. Because, I mean, <laughs> if somebody's funny, it means that they're not functioning quite right. Um, <laughs> if, if anyone was completely appropriate in their behavior all the time, there would never be anything funny about them. So, so comedy is basically about people not coping very well with the circumstances they find themselves in, you know, making mistakes. Uh, and that's the basis of farce, which is my favorite form of humor. It makes me laugh the most is that usually at the start, it's usually a man um, makes some mistake or does something which he then has to hush up and he spends the rest of the play or film hushing it up, you know. Well, you made but, a, but, a dozen faulty towers in, in that exact form, right? Oh, uh, exactly, exactly. So, so it's, it's, um, that's how, how the shape of comedy's got to be. And I realized early on that if somebody's going to behave inappropriately, it's more fun when they're important than if they're not important. So if you have someone who's a bit crazy who's running the Secret Service, that's funnier than someone who's a bit crazy who's out of work and sitting at home watching a lot of television. You see what I mean? Because the consequences are so much more important. You actually were a school teacher during the time between when you, I guess, graduated from something like what we would call high school and, and went to something like what we would call college. Things are a little differently staggered, but... That's right. Yeah, I, I couldn't get in to Cambridge for two years because they just abolished conscription. So there was a bottleneck of people trying to get straight in from school and people who'd been in the armed forces who were trying to get in. So they told me I had to wait two years. And my old um, headmaster from the school I was at from 8 to 13 rang me and said, would you like to come and teach? And I went there and taught for two years. And I was extraordinarily happy. It was a very quiet, unambitious life. I was paid five pounds a week. I did so well that after my first year, he put me up to seven pounds a week. And uh, I had a nice little bedroom with a gas fire and all my meals were provided and I liked the kids and I taught them soccer and cricket, which I adored. It was extraordinary, really. I'm an utter lack of any kind of ambition, but I was very, very happy there. When you got to Cambridge, um, were, you, were you as comfortable there as you had been in school when you were younger? I wasn't very comfortable at the beginning because I was aware that the people I was around were probably brighter than I was and certainly better informed. And I think I found that a little bit daunting. And I think I spent a lot of the time there at the beginning pretending that I knew things that I didn't know. You know, when they mentioned a name I didn't really recognize, I would nod as though I knew who it was. And I was sort of uh, keeping up a front for some time. And then I discovered that if you simply said to people, I don't know about that, they liked you much better better than when you pretended that you did because it gave them a chance to explain it to you which they enjoyed and I enjoyed hearing the explanation so I stopped I think I stopped that act more and, and uh, I was pretty happy at Cambridge but I think I took the whole business of studying a little too seriously I think I should have had more fun and done more exploring and not just sort of um, going to lectures because I've been told to go to lectures you know it's funny, you know, you describe that in your book, the extent to which you were kind of a conscientious student and and also kind of the kind of person who you you felt very obliged to 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 do what others had asked you to do or had told you to do, you know. I think I found it very very hard to say no. It was just as simple as that because if you said no, it sounded rude. 
And I have uh, a lot to thank Americans for. Americans are more direct than the British, or at least they're more direct than they used to be. We're talking 30, 40, 50 years ago. And I learned a kind of directness from Americans, which was difficult for me at the beginning, but I realized it was a much better way of dealing with things. I mean, to give you an example, I remember sitting at a lunch table in Los Angeles, my first visit to Los Angeles, really, about 1980. And um, somebody, an Englishman at the table, wanted the salt, um, and I just noticed he was looking around in this rather agitated way, and finally he caught someone's eye, pointed at the salt, and said, sorry. I mean, that was his way of asking for the salt. Well, as an American would say, please pass the salt, and, which is rather simpler. <laughs> well, you know, so many of these authority figures, like one of the things that they do is there is this kind of long period where they want something, you know, whether it's they want cheese from a cheese shop, right? And they they try every sort of polite and indirect means to get there and then just flip the heck out. Well, that's right, because, again, comedy, as I said, it's about people not behaving flexibly and intelligently and, and uh, what's the word, appropriately. It's about that. But it's also about things going wrong, because if you wrote a movie in which things all went right, there wouldn't be any laughs in it at all. So you're right. I think that on the one hand, you've got a characters who, if they are authority figures, there's more at stakes, which makes them funnier. And then things have got to go wrong, because if they got their way easily, there would be no humor in it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with John Cleese. His memoir is called So Anyway. It's available now in paperback. You know, when you were in school, there was something going on in um, British comedy, which you alluded to in the book, and I had never heard it uh, referred to by this term, but the satire boom. And I looked it up. It's called the satire boom, generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I thought you were just describing that satire had boomed. Um, and I, I wonder, like, if you were aware of it when you were in school and oh, if it well, meant something I was very aware you. of the very respectful, very, um, what's the word, deferential nature of, of British culture, but it was the only thing I knew, so that was, for me, the norm. And then I began to realize, and I got to Cambridge, that, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you had to be very careful. You didn't do impersonations of the prime minister. That was considered disrespectful, you know. And I don't think it was that dissimilar in America, uh, because in the 50s under Eisenhower, it was a very conventional society. People were very careful about saying anything the slightest bit edgy. And when Mort Sahl came along and started doing stuff at the Hungry Eye, I remember I was immediately interested. This seemed to be a different type of humor than, oh dear, I just heard this morning about Mike Nichols, but I used to have all his records with Elaine May, you know, a wonderfully witty and much sharper than anything that was going on in the UK. And slowly I began to see that we were stuffier than I'd realized, that the norm was not ideal. And then in 62, when I was still at Cambridge, four guys came to Cambridge on their way into the West End uh, and they did a show called Beyond the Fringe, and it was Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Alan Bennett, and Jonathan Miller. And it's the funniest show I've ever seen in my life and has always remained so. And what they were doing was they were making fun of things that people had not at that point made fun of. They made fun of our nuclear defense policy. They made fun of the prime minister. 
they did jokes about the Queen. They did stuff now that would have been regarded as racialist about African dictators. But they just blew the top off. Alan Bennett's uh, parody of a Church of England sermon, I've never heard laughter like it. People were screaming, and it was sort of, it was screams of liberty, of feeling we don't have to put up with this nonsense anymore. And then it got to London, and within four or five months, there was a television show on the same principles, not as subtle or as good as Beyond the Fringe. It was called That Was the Week That Was, and that spread to America. And David Frost, who I knew from Cambridge, was, was fronting it both in England and in America. He was flying across the Atlantic and doing shows one side and then the other every week. When you saw uh, Beyond the Fringe that first time, were you already doing comedy yourself? Yes, I'd started to do some uh, very... Uh, halting steps in that direction but I hadn't uh, developed any kind of a style um, but I'd got into the into the Footlights Club and I think we knew after we'd seen that show that we couldn't do that we didn't know enough about politics I mean those four the Beyond the Fringe were very bright well-informed people we weren't so I think we almost deliberately reacted against that that satirical uh, trend and and just did silly funny, simple stuff. We actually have a sketch uh, that you performed with your colleagues from uh, the Footlights. This is just after you had graduated school, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it's from a radio pilot that you did that uh, eventually became a show called I'm Sorry, I'll Read That Again. Right. And you you wrote this sketch, I think, and you are, you're a prosecutor in court and you're sort of laying out the timeline of uh, your accusations. The case would appear to be a simple one, Miller. The prosecution will endeavor to show that the sniveling, depraved, cowardly wretch whom you see cowering in the dock returned home on the night of the 14th of July in a particularly vicious and unpleasant frame of mind, had words with his wife, and then deliberately assaulted his pet ostrich by throwing a watering can at it. Oh, what? Uh, a watering can without a large uh, cylindrical tin-plated vessel with a perforated pouring piece much used by the lower classes for the purpose of artificially moistening the surface soil. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Bartlett. Your knowledge is inexhaustible. You are very gracious, my lad, if I may continue. Uh, the ostrich... Oh, what? Uh, the ostrich, my lad, an ostrich, a large, uh, hairy, flightless bird resident in Africa, remarkable for its feet in running and much prized for its feathers. Ah, a kind of cat. <laughs> Uh, no, Miller. Uh, the ostrich, uh, taking flight, flew out of the window and landed on a passing ice cream cart. Oh, a butt cart? Ice cream cart, my lad. Ice cream, an artificial cream substitute, a sweetened, flavored, and frozen, originally invented by the American Indians as an antidote to trench foot. <laughs> remarkable, remarkable. Was there some kind of turning point as your Cambridge Footlights show went from being you know, a series of, you know, sketches in just kind of casual cabarets on campus to being a big show on campus to being a big show off campus to being a big show on the West End to no, going to Broadway. Really, there where was you... really just one, one event. That was the Footlights Review in 1963. I'd been in the Footlights Review the previous year. I was wondering whether to do the show because I was behind and studying my exams. And I thought, oh, what the hell, I'll do it anyway, which is extraordinary when I look back on it because the result of the show was that the show was so good because of two guys, one called Bill Ardy and the other called Tim Brooke Taylor, that we got uh, asked to transfer to the West End, which was huge. I mean, it was a little student review. It was supposed to run for two weeks in Cambridge, and that was it. 
and we were all supposed to go off to our jobs. So first of all, an impresario came along and said, I want to put your show on in the West End, which flabbergasted us. But the next thing was that people from the BBC, BBC Light Entertainment Radio, uh, came along and offered two or three of us jobs. They offered me a job, not as a performer, but as a writer uh, with a training to become a producer. And, of course, I thought, well, this is fun. Uh, you don't have to wear a tie. Uh, the hours are pretty lax. And you're trying to make people laugh, which is a nice way of earning a living, even if it's a bit scary sometimes. So, like a shot, I wrote a letter to a firm of uh, lawyers that I was uh, engaged to, to start work within two or three weeks and said, I'm going to go into show business. I always wondered what the hell they thought I was doing. They must have thought I was mad because they were very good lawyers. They were solicitors <laughs> to the Bank of England, you know. But anyway, I went off and I never had any regrets about it. But I, I was never utterly committed to show business. It wasn't as though, like some people, they know from the very beginning that they want to be in show business or they want to be doctors or something like that. I never knew that. And I just continued drifting into it. And I had moments when I thought of doing other things. But then I, when David Frost came back into my life and asked me to do a show with him in 1966 and I started to do that that was really when I sort of threw my my uh, my weight into into show business and then I think I became a rather different person because I think I'd been re pretty relaxed up to then and once I got into show business I was so scared of being bad that I used to work rather harder than any of my contemporaries on trying to avoid being bad I was struck by that in your book. You describe how much you enjoyed um, the writing and creating process, especially mm -hmm. working with Graham Chapman, your um, yeah, the moment of, of uh, the work. moment of realization that you've hit on a really funny idea is a wonderful moment. But what you don't describe is something that a lot of other comics love more than anything else, which is being on stage and getting a laugh. In well, fact, it's lovely to get the laugh, but the trouble is all the anxiety about whether you're going to get the laugh. So when you're out there and the audience is laughing, it's marvelous. But the rest of the time, you're always remembering what a complete idiot, how humiliating it is when you try to be funny and people don't laugh. You see, actors never talk about dying. Because if you're in a, in a play as an actor and it's not quite believable or isn't really working, it's just boring. But it's not humiliating for the actors, but for a comic who's knocking himself out to make people laugh and failing, that is real humiliation. That's do, death. Do you think that you got something different uh, out of the performance aspect than the people that you were working with as fellow performers? Do you feel like you were more... Um, trepidatious about it more I think I was more trepidatious and more driven therefore to make it as good as I possibly could I was always a, it struck me that a lot of performers were just a bit lax they were just taking it too easy they weren't working hard enough and I I, I worked hard but it was always out of this fear of being bad the result of this is that I rehearsed much more than most of my contemporaries, and I rewrote much more. I was much less easily satisfied um, because I, I was always trying to make it absolutely as good as possible. And I, I did find a lot of my contemporaries just seemed to be much more happy-go-lucky about it. I think they had more fun. Well, I think I had less fun, but I think my work was better. After a break, I'll continue my conversation with John Cleese. I'll talk to him about the anxiety he feels performing in front of a live audience.
Plus, I'll sit down with Dee Dee Penny, the founder of the band Dum Dum Girls. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. For music, games, puzzles, and trivia of all sorts right now, check out Ask Me Another. Play along with a Seinfeld-themed version of Taboo, games of mysterious phenomena, and see what you know about some of the lesser-known puppets on Sesame Street. Ask Me Another's like Trivia Night, but a lot funnier. Play along now at npr.org slash podcasts, npr.org slash podcasts, and on the NPR One app. Support for this podcast and the following message come from NatureBox, a snack company dedicated to making their customers happy. Here's Donna, NatureBox's director of customer service, describing the Random Snacks of Kindness program. We had a customer who contacted us late in her pregnancy, and she was craving dark cocoa nom-noms. So we not only got a box sent out to her, our agent added a few extra bags to get her through to her delivery date. Visit naturebox.com slash bullseye and get 50% off your first box now. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. I'm talking with Monty Python co-founder John Cleese. His memoir is called So Anyway. It seems like one thing that you and Graham Chapman were very committed to in your comedy writing was consistency, a consistency of structure and internal logic. I think that's right. You see, I, I wonder if it was because we both had basically a scientific training. Gray was, you know, qualifying as a doctor, and I got into Cambridge on physics. So the idea of a, of a more scientific approach and, uh, was was first nature to us, and we were sometimes almost um, puzzled that our Oxford friends, um, particularly Jones and Palin, who were producing very funny material, never seemed to worry about the structure or the building of it. For example, I think Terry once wrote that um, funny sketch about the very fat man in the restaurant in Meaning of Life, Mr. Creosote, wasn't it, who comes in. But I, I never felt it built correctly. So Gray and I took it and restructured it, and we thought it was very much better as a result. But I don't think Terry ever felt we were making it better. We were sure we were, and he was pretty sure we weren't. So it was a really a difference of philosophy. Well, it's interesting because it... You know, in in you could imagine it as being in contrast to the things that made Python so remarkable and special, which are kind of the 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 kind of outrageous silliness of it. The yeah, fact that it yeah. was willing to go anywhere. But I, you argue in the book that basically having that that you can't go those places without having the structure and the logic undergirding. Well, it doesn't matter how silly your premise is. If, if the, the buying a bed sketch, which I always like, the moment that the young couple mention the word mattress, then the um, sales guy puts a large brown paper bag over his head and won't take it off until they have sung a verse of the hymn Jerusalem. Uh, now, that's about as silly as it gets, but we stick rigidly to that because you have to. If you suddenly change the logic, if the salesman takes the, the bag off his head before anybody sung a verse of Jerusalem, the whole thing collapses. Those are the rules. You lay them down at the beginning. It doesn't matter how silly they are. You've got to stick to them. I um, I was really excited to read how 
maybe really excited is the wrong. I was interested to read uh, how important uh, having a thesaurus around was to you, oh, yeah. Chapman. Like how central a thesaurus was to your writing process. And and while I was writing the book, I mean, I always have a thesaurus there, and it's a constant source of delight. Although I have to say, if I can't get the word, and I try before I go in the thesaurus, then most of the time. I can't find the word in the thesaurus anyway. It's rather odd. But occasionally you just come across one that you've missed and it's absolutely perfect. And one of the delights of writing is trying to draw a picture of something either in your imagination or something that happened historically and trying to describe it absolutely as precisely as possible and trying to get the feeling and the emotions and describe them as accurately as you can. And there's a marvelous moment when you think that you've got all the right words. Do you think that one of the appeals to you of farce is as as false the you know, as Faulty Towers was, is that it is like a comedy system. Like it is a it is like a you know, the the board game mousetrap, uh, but for comedy that you'd have to fit all these different pieces together perfectly. Well, the greatest farces of all time um, are like intricate pieces of clockwork. And in the first 20 minutes, certain things are established. And it's as though the playwright has wound up the plot, which then can kind of un... What would be the word? Like a spring un... un mm-hmm. I can't think of the word, but you know how it, yeah. it just sort of unwinds. Uh, and and really should go right through to the end of the play without introducing any new elements. The greatest farces have got everything established in the first 20 minutes. Now, this is a, an intellectual task. And when you re- read great masters like the French guy, Georges Fado, who wrote about 1890, I mean, when you look at it now, some of the translated dialogue is pretty flat, but the... F- the plots are just so clever and so ingeniously constructed that they're almost intellectually satisfying as well as providing a framework for real humor. But I think I was drawn to fast because what I love more than anything in the world is laughing out of control. And it, it happens now and again. You know, when you laugh so much that it hurts... And that's a wonderful sensation, and you only really get it when the emotions involved in the comedy are rather heightened. And in fast, you get more heightened emotions than you do in comedies and comedy of mariners or just people swapping jokes. I, I want to play a clip from Faulty Towers. So um, if anyone hasn't seen Faulty Towers, you played Basil Faulty, who was a hotel proprietor, and... Um, you know, every every episode was a pretty complicated farce in which his sort of combination of best intentions and sometimes a little bit of ill intentions. Um, and well, he's uh, always covering you know, something up that yeah. he's fearful that somebody will discover, that Sybil will discover he's put money on a horse or that the health inspector will discover that there's a rat running around the kitchen. Yeah. So the thing that you are trying to uh, that you are trying to keep people from discovering is that uh, there has been a guest who's asked for breakfast in bed. Um, your your wife gave him some kippers, which is fish that's sometimes eaten for breakfast. And um, so anyway, la di da di da di da. 
you end up thinking that you've uh, poisoned this man by giving him bad kippers. Because I don't even realize he's dead when I first serve him. Right. Because I'm just ranting on about something. I don't even notice he's lying there motionless with his eyes staring. And so now there's a doctor coming to inspect the body, and uh, you have decided that you are going to hide the kippers. That's right. You brought him his breakfast? Yes. So you told her he was dead? Yes. Well, then, why did you bring him... Why did you bring him the milk, then? Why? Yes, why? Well, when he said Mr. Lehman was dead, I thought he said he's still in bed. Well, he didn't exactly say he was dead, Doctor. Well, I said he was pretty quiet. Quiet? Exactly. What were you talking to him about, Basil? Car strikes, was it? Thank you, Sybil. I don't understand. He's been dead for about ten hours. Yes, it's so final, isn't it? Basil! Well, wouldn't you say it was final, dear? I'd say it was pretty bloody final. <laughs> you mean to tell me you didn't realise this man was dead? Well, the people don't talk that much in the morning. Oh, look, I'm just delivering a tray, right? If the guest isn't singing, oh, what a beautiful morning, I don't immediately think, oh, there's another one snuffed it in the night, another <laughs> name in the 40 Towers Book of Remembrance. I mean, this is a hotel, not a Burma railway. Basil! Well, I mean, he does actually say hotel outside. I mean, perhaps I should be more specific. Hotel for people who have a better than 50% chance of making it through the night. What, what are you looking at me like that for? Basil, there's a kipper sticking out of your jacket. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm speaking with actor, writer, and director John Cleese of Monty Python. His memoir is called So Anyway. You hadn't done anything with Python as Python in decades until earlier this year when um, you reunited on stage. That's in London. Um, and I wonder how it was different to perform, at, you know, perform almost retrospectively, um, you know, 30 years or whatever it's been after the last time the group of you got together. Yes, I, I suppose the point of it was that um, once we decided to do it, and we very nearly decided to, to, to do it in 1999, um, when we get together, which is very seldom, because we've been badly managed for, for 40 years, and we very seldom had proper systematic meetings, and we had all gone off in completely different directions. You know, Eric's gone the direction of musicals, writes most brilliant lyrics. Michael's done his travel programs. Terry Gilliam wants to make movies, which I would pay money not to do. I think it's a dreadful way of passing your life. Jonesy does all sorts of extraordinary things. He just made a documentary about the global financial crisis. Uh, but we all do completely different things. And we're very different people. So we've gone in completely different directions. But we were a great team in the late 60s and early 70s. Because of that, we didn't see much of each other. When we do, we laughed a lot. And then when we got together um, just over a year ago to discuss uh, the fact we had uh, legal expenses of £800,000, is quite a lot of money, because a case had been completely mishandled. Um, we brought someone in, an old Cambridge friend who'd managed Queen for 40 years, 
uh, because he was an old friend. He was the number two in the Footlights in Eric's year when Eric was president of the Footlights. And uh, he'd passed, Jim Beach's name is, he'd passed his law exams on the notes that I'd given him. Um, because when I was doing law, I was a year ahead of him. So when I finished by, I just gave him all my notes and then he became my lawyer. So that amused me. We've <laughs> known Jim a long time. And we were all laughing at this ridiculous situation we were in. And Jim, Jim said, well, why didn't you just do, do a couple of shows and pay it off? And we thought, well, why not? That's the way to do it. It's painless and we'll have some fun. When it was done, um, did you feel... A, glad to be done with it or did you feel melancholic about being done with it? No, it was very strange. Not a single one of us felt melancholy because uh, we had lunch together the next day and we just discussed the fact that we were, in a sense, surprised to feel there was no regret. No, what a shame, or it's all over. It was as though it was a perfect way to wind something up that had not quite had closure. And to be with those fans and to see the enormous well of affection that they had for us for making them laugh over 40 years. It wasn't a, it wasn't a show in the ordinary sense of the words, like a pop concert. I mean, as somebody said to me, if you want to listen to the great rock songs, then you sit at home and listen to them on, you know, on your headphones. If you go to the arena, it's for occasion. It's not to hear the songs again. And once I'd realized that, then I really began to enjoy the show enormously. But at the end of it, it just felt that was it. It was a very satisfactory way of concluding it. And now we would all go off in our different directions again. Do you think you're going to write further memoirs about your time? Uh, oh, yes. yes. Uh, I, I'd only ever seen this as, as um, uh, the first stage of the memoirs. The second memoirs will have a lot of stuff to do with Python and also Faulty Towers, Fish Called Wanda, the psychiatry books that I wrote with my ex-therapist, um, the management sales training films, uh, masses of stuff, which that will be the second. And then the third one will be more about what a ridiculous place the world is and why would any of us bother to try and make it better when it clearly isn't possible. Um, and will be more philosophical, but I hope just as funny. But the, the delight about it is I like making myself laugh, and it's nice when I hear that I've made other people laugh. Well, John Cleese, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. Really I appreciate nice you um, helping me to sell my book. <laughs> John Cleese's book is So Anyway. It's available now in paperback. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Dum Dum Girls was originally a misnomer. The group was really just one woman recording alone at home. She'd been in bands before, but she'd never been the driving force. She named herself Dee Dee, and her lo-fi garage rock records brought her huge attention. Eventually, she ended up on sub-pop records with a real band and a veteran producer who'd worked with Blondie and the Go-Go's. Over three albums, the band's garage band and girl band influences haven't disappeared, but they've been supplemented by a broad variety of sounds. The Dum Dum Girls' latest record is called Too True. Here's a bit from one of their singles, Are You Okay?
I spoke to Didi Penny last year. Didi, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. I read somewhere that you originally uh, wrote that song with um, Ronnie Spector in mind. Um, yeah, I I definitely wrote that song with her in mind, um, which I think maybe just in the most obvious way you could pick that up by the the Are You Okay melodic line, you know, kind of makes reference to her classic, like, you know, little hiccup, vocal hiccup thing she's famous for. Um, But I mean, when I say I wrote it with her in mind, it's not like we chat and we have plans to do music together. (laughs) I mean, we, we had a few years ago met and talked about it very casually. So it's something that, you know, occasionally if I'm writing, um, I'll, I'll think about it in the context of like, well, maybe I'll just add this to my folder on my desktop of my laptop, songs for Ronnie that I've had for like three years. And uh, my producer, Richard, just ended up, you know, um, saying that it would be a mistake if I didn't record it myself and include it on the album. So She's kind of an amazing lady. She was on the show a few years ago. And yeah, she's amazing. I basically walked away from interviewing her just wanting to like either I mean marry her or <laughs> bare minimum have her be like my aunt or something. Yeah, yeah, she's incredible. I uh she came to a mixing session for the last full length Only in Dreams when uh I was working in New York and so I was really nervous and uh I kind of dressed up for the occasion and What were you wearing? I probably had on something not too far off from what I would wear, like, for shows at the time, probably, like, a black vintage dress, and, you know, I put lipstick on, and she walked into the room, and she just looked at me, and she's like, you look like me, because I was, you know, fully ripping off the cat eye, (laughs) you know, heavy bangs, lipstick thing. I was like, yeah, (laughs) yep, (laughs) it's kind of a thing too <laughs> because of you yeah um, but she was great she uh told me to turn the vocals up on every song on the record and you know <laughs> which is something i get a lot so um you had toured with bands through your 20s before you started doing um this project and they weren't bands where you were uh where you were the creative driving force of the band, the primary slash exclusive creative driving force of the band. Was that comfortable for you or uncomfortable to be a part of somebody else's thing? I mean, it's easy to say that I was unhappy now. You know, it's like a snap comment. But for me, it was like a really long journey to get to the place where I felt like I could do something on my own. What do you What do you think was going on? Um, I mean, I grew up um, being like pretty self conscious and didn't have a ton of confidence, and I just didn't have the ability to to actually do it. I can remember being like unable to sing out loud in front of people, like physical limitations because of nerves or anxiety or whatever and then at some point it finally just caught up with me where I was like I have to do this on my terms because I'm unhappy and if I have an unhealthy unhappy relationship with music that's horrible because it's the only thing that you know has the potential to make me feel happy. Do you think that you created a character and persona 
in part as a response to feeling a little bit uncomfortable putting yourself front and center? For sure, yeah. I mean, it it was that uh, initial unsure step, and um, it was like a new thing for me, and so it felt appropriate to have some sort of new version of myself. Did you feel like you could have a grand vision for it, or did that conflict with the perfectionism, and you had to kind of focus on a narrow field in order to feel comfortable doing it? I mean, I really didn't. There wasn't a whole lot of intention involved. It was it was a pretty direct thing. It was write a song, record it, put it on the Internet, maybe five people will hear it. And that's always been a funny thing for me to look back and evaluate is that Dumb Dumb Girls essentially came into existence with the first song I ever put on the Internet, the picking of the name, and then every step beyond that was recorded basically like the entire learning curve and learning process was committed to record (laughs) which is you know uh cool just you know the 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 growth process is is interesting and it's weird when it's public after a break i continue my conversation with dd penny the front woman for the band dum dum girls i'll talk to her about how she used her performances to help her contend with a family member's serious illness. Plus, I'll share the least braggy rap song ever recorded. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. For music games, puzzles, and trivia of all sorts right now, check out Ask Me Another. Play along with a Seinfeld-themed version of Taboo, games of mysterious phenomena, and see what you know about some of the lesser-known puppets on Sesame Street. Ask Me Another's like trivia night, but a lot funnier. Play along now at npr.org slash podcasts, npr.org slash podcasts, and on the NPR One app. Support for this podcast and the following message come from thrivemarket.com, an online shopping club where healthy, organic foods and non-toxic products are up to 50% off retail prices and shipped to your door. You can easily filter by your preferences, including vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO. And when you become a member, ThriveMarket.com will donate a free membership to a low-income family, teacher, or military veteran. Go to ThriveMarket.com NPR to start your free two-month trial and get 15% off your first order. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Dee Dee Penny. She's the front woman for the band Dum Dum Girls. Their latest album is called Too True. I want to hear a little bit of one of those early songs. This is from 2008. It's called Hey Sis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How does it feel to listen to it? Um, nostalgic and and cute. Like I, <laughs> I, it's just funny. Like it takes me back. I don't remember it, you know, crystal clear because I've been a stoner for too long. Um, but you know, I remember writing 
that song in a studio apartment I lived in that had a Murphy bed and figuring out bar chords. I'd never played those before and figuring out how to record. And, you know, if you were to look at the very basic garage band session, if you will, um, I think every track peaked and I didn't even like know what that meant. Um, you know, it was later I, I realized how to lower the volume on <laughs> the <laughs> microphone. Um, but, I, you know, to me it's – I'm proud of that because that was me figuring it out. That was my first step. It's funny how the recording challenges of not really knowing what you're doing and recording in a studio apartment with a Murphy bed – um, dovetail though with the energy and the tone of what you were doing and it must have been nice to hear something and think like well on the one hand that's a little messed up but on the other hand it fits yeah I mean it for me it it felt like exactly what I wanted you know and and that really um, is completely me like I, I use the term loosely mixed that um, <laughs> I had it mastered for vinyl, um, you know, but I don't even know what they could have done with that, really. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it also, I think that uh, it was just really, really fun. You know, there was n there were no uh, stressors involved at that point, no logistics. It wasn't thinking about how will I do this with the band on tour. You know, it was really just like I'm writing very straightforward, simple songs, and I'm, you know, getting to do the thing that I love, which is singing and coming up with melodies and doing, you know, harmonies. How hard was it for you as someone who had at one point been too shy to sing in public to become someone who went on stage in front of a band and, you know tens of thousands of adoring fans. That's very um, generous. <laughs> I meant across the country. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> All our arena shows, yeah, they're um, But yeah, I mean, how hard was it for you to get to that point? It was an interesting road for sure. You know, when I first started playing in bands, I, as I mentioned, had like pretty debilitating stage fright and I just had to get, I just got drunk, you know, and that sort of cured the initial issue um, and then once I'd played a few shows and I had felt that rush of performing I knew that that was like what lied on the other side of the fear and that it was worth dealing with that initial like you know moment because what was on the other side was uh, you know so inspiring and uh, such a pleasurable experience it felt right and, you know, once you just can check off a couple of those little validating things, it just, you know, pushes you forward. And, and you know, even even now I still have issues. It's usually in scenarios that are still somewhat new, like playing on live television is really scary for me. Radio is still very scary for me. Um, so, you know, there, there's still, those are moments where I have, you know, kind of severe anxiety and have to, um, you know, meditate or take a Xanax or something, <laughs> depending on how serious the situation is. Um, but I think that at this point, I've learned how to 
you know, kind of transform that anxiety into something really positive. Um, I, I want to play uh, another one of your songs. Um, this is from your record from 2011, and my guest is Dee Dee from Dum Dum Girls. Um, and uh, the LP's called Only in Dreams. The song's called Hold Your Hand. Um, and I wonder before we listen to this song if you could tell me a little bit about it. Sure. Um, I mean, that record deals almost exclusively with the year prior to it coming out, which was uh, my mother was diagnosed with, um, you know, fatal brain tumors uh, kind of out of nowhere. And then um, it was about a year of just watching her disappear, um, which was really heavy at the time. You know, it it fell during, you know, that first year of Domino. You know, it was this initial, like, oh, my God, I signed a sub pop. I have a band. I'm going on tour. This is crazy. Like, well, a week later, like, oh, my God, like, this is happening. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of unable to write about anything else. So that song was, I suppose, you know, just kind of recognizing that there was nothing that I could do other than just try to be present and um, comforting in some capacity, which is infuriating as, you know, someone who wants to help and wants to fix things, you know. Let's hear Dum Dum Girls and hold your hand. working when your mom was sick uh, because she was sick for a long period of time and it was, you know, it was important and your family had to ask you to do that as well. As yeah, I, I mean, I, I, uh, you know, like I said, it, it pretty swiftly followed the whole record deal, going on tour thing and I had a serious conversation with my dad and my mom was there and, you know, she sort of piped in but we weren't really at uh you know she wasn't super engaged but I was like do I I need to I need to stop I need to do that thing where you like put your life on hold and you go home and you help and um they were like you know like it's not like we're okay and you can come back you know every time you're not working come back of course but um they really didn't want me to you know, potentially miss, you know, the important first step. And, and I still, to this day, like, I don't know how I feel about that. I, I had a lot of guilt about it for a long time. And I guess at this point I feel like 
it was an all right decision, but at the same time, you know, I don't I don't really know. Part of your job is like going on stage and rocking out. <laughs> like you can't just go and only right. sing sad songs, right? right? Um I, I, was it did it ever feel uh good to just hit the stage and just just jam out? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um performing has always had sort of that escapist element to it and uh there's a lot of adrenaline involved and you know, you can really exercise some anger on stage even if, you know, it's maybe not doesn't translate so directly. Um but yeah, I mean, I I tend to think that really the only way that I dealt with the gravity of that situation was you know, the the cathartic nature of performing and you know, I I wrote songs about it and uh but I didn't really deal with it in a normal way and that had a lot of consequence over the next couple of years, you know, emotionally, but Thankfully, you know, I did have some outlet during that time. And, uh, yeah, so it's, you know, it was like my primal scream therapy or something. What's the most thrilling part for you about the place that you're at now with this band? Um, I mean, I, th- I think for me it's always remained the same. Like, when I have a good show like a good, good show. Like there's a whole, you know, everybody's nitpicky. And a lot of times if you complain of a bad show, it's it's so in your head, you know, the it's not really a bad show. Um, but for me, when I have those, you know, really incredible shows where I'm somehow fully present and also not, and, you know, it's new agey, transcendent stuff, um, it's like nothing else. It's crazy, and I think I'll always chase that. And and luckily, I have those experiences every couple months, at least twice a year, I hope, knock on wood. Um, and so, you know, that's what, that's what motivates me to keep performing because it's just so special, you know, and it's so rare, and I don't, I don't get that feeling from anything else. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to talk to you. My pleasure. Dee Dee Penny, front woman for the band Dum Dum Girls. Their most recent album is called Too True. The band recently collaborated with the group Merchandise on a new single, Red Sun. That's out now on Sub Pop. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. Rappers project themselves as a lot of things, like powerful or super lyrical or hyper-aggressive. Not pathetic, though. Not usually. I do know of one exception. Fat Lip was a member of The Far Side, one of the most ambitious and successful alternative hip-hop groups of the 90s. Their debut album went gold. Their second album sold a little less but was no less acclaimed. And then, about five years into their run... Fat Lip got himself kicked out. He didn't record pretty much anything for five years. Then he put out a track called What's Up Fat Lip? And maybe it's the most pathetic rap song ever. 
Not pathetic like he can't rap. He can. It's a great song. Pathetic like, like it's literally about how pathetic his life is. Spike Jones directed the video for it. It looks like maybe he actually shot it on a camcorder or something. It opens with a shot of Fat Lip in this ratty clown suit smoking a blunt on a street corner. Like just a regular street corner, maybe in front of a strip mall or something. Then this little kid runs up and kicks him right in the junk. And the rest of the thing isn't that much more hopeful. Yeah, I'm a brother, but sometimes I don't feel black. My girl is white, my game in tight. So if you ain't see me in a while, I'll be like, dude, you are right. Who am I kidding? Who am I fooling when they be like, what's up, fat lip? And I say, cooling. Who am I kidding? Who am I fooling when they be like, what's up, fat lip? And I say, cooling. Who am I kidding? Who am I fooling when they be like, what's up, fat lip? And I say, cooling. He wears this children's backpack while he rides around on this bike that has a toddler seat on it, and then he gets jacked by, like, a maybe a 12-year-old for the bike. He raps about how washed up he is. He raps in a used car lot. He dances sort of spastically with no shirt on in a kind of sorry-looking bedroom. I've been a loser just about my life. Type to trying to turn off onto a housewife. What do you expect? I give respect and feel for from At one point, he dresses up like an old wino and he sings little snippets of the far side's one hit. That's really painful. The whole thing's kind of an amazing trick, really. Inverting completely what we expect from a rapper. It's like when a politician who's in trouble goes on Saturday Night Live. You're grabbing your story, ironizing it, trying to flip it around. And the song is great, a genuinely great song. But the record it was supposed to promote ended up back on the shelf. It was five years before Fat Lip made another. So, while I'd love to say that the whole thing worked, that adding his own voice to his chorus of detractors changed his course, and Fat Lip ended up back on top, I can't say that. But we do still have this one great song. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith, production fellow at Maximum Fun, is Abadi and X. Perello. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. Production assistant is Christian Duenas. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label, Memphis Industries, for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff between now and then, check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, hosted by the brilliant and hilarious Guy Branham. Come follow us on Twitter at Bullseye and find us on Facebook at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 